Well, hi, I wanna uh, join my welcome to Janet's welcome, 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 welcome. My name is Melissa Seymour, recovered compulsive overeater. I'm in New York and um, yeah, so um, tonight we are going to discuss uh, the family afterward chapter, which is one of my favorite chapters in the book because um, it's just full of really good direction and guidance um, and how we practice this principle, you know, how we practice all the principles that we've learned in, in our families. Um, and so it's a pretty, it's a lengthy chapter. There's a lot to it. My hope is to be able to get through the whole chapter tonight. If not, um, you know, I'll kind of, I might stop. And um, so just to kind of um, remind people if you're new or if you haven't really been around here, um, this part is, is a workshop. So I'll just share it. Um, I'll talk about this chapter and then we'll open up for questions only at the, afterwards. If you have any questions about recovery at all or about this chapter. Um, so, um, you know, my, I, I, to give a little background before we start, it, you know, this is called the family afterward and after what, you know, after someone has, worked the program, you know, the, the chapter is, um, and hopefully has had a spiritual awakening because um, the chapter where it comes, it's, um, you know, in the order where it is in the book, it's um, after you've, after working with others and after some of the other um, practicing the principles aspects of the program, now comes the family afterwards. So, Page 122 says, um, wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal, successful readjustment means just the opposite. All members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. And this involves a process of depletion. So basically, really what it's saying is that the whole family does not have to treat us with kid gloves you know, afraid that we're going to binge if they treat us just like a regular family member. Um, you know, what that, for someone who's a compulsive overeater, what does that mean? You know, at this point, our families don't have to hide their stash of candy. They shouldn't have to. Um, or tiptoe around us, afraid that they're going to upset us, afraid that they're going to make us so upset that we're going to go running right to the food. You know, in, in early abstinence or early recovery, it might be you know, maybe that your family gives you a free pass, but um, that doesn't last long, nor should it, right? Nor should it, um, you know, and in, in, in a recovered state in the afterward period, what we're told here is that we become a loving and tolerant parent, child, sister, brother, spouse, et cetera, you know, and it talks about coming together with a common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. And I, and I think it's important, you know, um, tolerance has many definitions. Um, you know, I had once thought that it just sort of meant I had to put up with people, I had to tolerate people, but really tolerance means that um, a diminished sensitivity that if I have a greater tolerance to something, it means that exposure to it doesn't necessarily set me off, right? That if you have a particular tolerance to a medication, 
it means you're going to need more of it to get an effect. And same thing with family, right? That if I get more tolerance for the people around me, it means kind of, I got a thicker skin. The things that would like set me off, um, they shouldn't anymore. That should be my overarching goal to not be so sensitive, to, to toughen up just a bit. Um, and really that means that my ego has to be deflated. That means that the great me needs to become less significant in my mind. Um, you know, and my, my sponsor had shared with me early on in recovery, and I actually was able to share it with someone today, um, that part of what I was suffering from was, was a condition known as King baby, that I was, um, emotionally immature demanding, but I wanted to be the ruler. You know, this idea about being on a pedestal. I wanted to sit up in the high chair, you know, and bang my fists on the tray, trying to rule my family from that position of baby. And um, and we can't live that way, you know. Um, that is not the way that we can live anymore in recovery. And page 122, it, it says here, we find the more one member of the family demands that the others concede to him, the more resentful they become. And this makes for discord and unhappiness. So if, if, if they're conceding, if you're expecting other people to concede to you, it means that you want other people in your family to admit defeat, to surrender. And yeah, of course that leads to discord. Of course that leads to disagreements and, and lack of harmony in a family. Um, and unhappiness because who wants to surrender, right? And even more so, who wants to surrender to another family member? You know, that does not lead for a happy home. Um, you know, we need to make sure that we don't demand this from our families. So if, you know, if you spent your life like I did as King Baby in the high chair, um, I have to stop it. Like, this is really, this is where I'm told, like, get out of the high chair and start being helpful to other people, you know? Um, and so, um, you know, why? Why do I demand that other people do things my way? Is it, you know, and it says here, is it not because each wants to play the lead? Is not each trying to arrange the family show to his liking? Is he not? unconsciously trying to see what he can take from the family life rather than give. And I, you know, it's, it, to me, it's like, every time they talk about the stage director, I'm like brought right back to step three, right? That's, that's the first place in the book that we've read about a stage director and, you know, and the stage directors forever trying to arrange everything to their liking, you know, why? Is it because I want what's best for the family? You know, sometimes, yes. Sometimes as the stage director, I really want everybody to be doing well. But even that's flawed thinking. You know, believing that I know what's best for my family and that I have all the answers, you know, um, because what do I know really? You know, especially uh, this book who's written, you know, to me, The Addict is, um, well, all I know is my perspective right? Is the way that I view things. Um, and I don't, you know, and, and what I always come down to is 
um, I don't even know how much food to eat. Like, what makes me think that I'm well qualified to know what anyone else in the world should be doing when, you know, I say like one of the most humblest acts, the greatest act of humility I do is when I have to weigh blueberries on the scale, you know, and, um, and have to take off the extra blueberry because that's an indicator to me that um, I don't know what's best for anybody else. If I don't even know how much to feed this body and I'm gonna be 55 years old and I don't even know how much to feed my body. And on top of it, I actually have to write it down and commit it to another adult on a daily basis. For me, it's not humiliation, it's not groveling, but it's a full surrender that um, I ought to have a lot of humility in my day. Um, you know, and so also as the stage director, right? Even though I might think I want what's best for everybody and I realize that mm, I don't have the capacity to know what's best. Sometimes if I'm really being honest with myself here, I don't care what's best for others. Like that's the truth. Sometimes I just want what's best for me. I want what I want. You know, I want what I want because I want it. And, um, and again, afterwards, right? This afterwards period, Living, if you want to live recovered, um, you can't live that way anymore. I can't live that way. Um, I have to look at the world from an entirely different angle. I must be rid of selfishness or it will kill me, right? Again, we're brought face-to-face -face with step three. And we, we would learn that selfishness is the root of our troubles. You know, in How It Works on page 62, it discusses this. It says, above all, Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of selfishness. We must, or it kills us. And God makes that possible. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. You know, and earlier on in, in the chapter, the family afterwards, it was saying that a lot of this is happening almost at an unconscious level, meaning it's not always deliberate. You know, and then, so then how can we work around it? What can we do if we're not even like doing this deliberately, but we're still doing it? You know, um, I think that's why we always pray. I think that's why we know that we have to have a relationship with God, that we ask God to help us be open to his direction. You know, and, and you know, if you think about the order, again, where this chapter is, We've already done the chapter into action. We've already done, you know, page 86 there where it says before we begin, before we begin our day, right? Before we begin our, our lives, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance for after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. So if I want to improve my relationships with my family, I have to tell you one of the most powerful acts that I've done to remove, to improve the relationships with my family is to begin praying for them, like to really pray. Um, you know, 
and not pray. Here's a little different, right? It's not pray that they bend to my will, right? It's not pray for the outcome that I want for my family members, but, um, or for them to do things the way that I'd like, but rather that I can be more useful to them. So those are my prayers. I ask God and I've got, I've got prayers for every one of my family members. Um, you know, I have a prayer for my husband. I thank God um, for my husband. You know, I ask that he can feel, I ask in my prayers that my husband is able to feel God's love for him. I ask that he's given wisdom and peace. I ask God to help guide him. I ask God to give him strength, patience. Um, I ask God to ease any worries that might be on my husband's mind. Um, I ask God to direct his thoughts and vision so that he sees the beauty and the good in the world. And then I ask God to direct my thoughts and my vision so that I see the beauty and the good in my husband. And I ask that um, I'm able to see God, I'm able to see my husband through God's eyes. And I ask to be taught for God to teach me to be the partner he wants me to be. You know, and that's pretty much the same basic scaffold structure of the prayer that I pray where my children are concerned. You know, the most important thing that I can ask for my, for my children, for my mom, for my siblings, for anybody, is that they can feel a closeness to God, that they can feel their own God consciousness within. Um, you know, and so I have many, many prayers for my, for my, I have different prayers for my children in different circumstances. Um, and, you know, if, uh, anyone is ever interested in any of my prayers for my kids, I am always happy to, to share them. I think um, one of the most incredible things that we can do in, in recovery together um, is to share prayers with one another. I mean, I am so grateful that I have uh, a fellowship and a community of men and women that um, we, don't, we don't commiserate. That's not the way that this afterward period is. It's not, let me call you so I can complain to you about how lousy my husband is or how lousy my kids are. But I can tell you the difficult that I might be having and then um, offer some suggestions or prayers that someone else has found useful. Um, and so page 122 also says that years of living with an alcoholic is almost sure to make any wife or child neurotic the entire family is to some extent ill. You know, and if you look up neurotic, um, it's abnormally sensitive, obsessive, tense, and anxious. And when I read that, I think, wait a second, they're describing the addict, they're describing me. Abnormally sensitive, right? Obsessive, well, hello, that's why I'm here, because I have an obsession, tense and anxious. And that is, you know, I would say that, um, you know, perhaps uh, if you're noticing that in your family members, perhaps they caught it from you, you know, perhaps you passed those characteristics on to them. Uh, you know, when you live, when, when you live with someone who's unpredictable, up and down, wildly excited, and then terribly depressed, what happens is it causes people to be tense 
it makes people feel like they're walking on eggshells around you. You know, and for me, what that really looked like was, um, especially where food is, was, was concerned, I was forever swearing off foods. Um, and that I would rid the house of all junk. Like if I couldn't eat it today, then nobody could eat it and it can't be in my house. And I would clear it out and I would make a big production about it. Um, you know, and then of course, what would happen is, you know, promises and commitments and swearing, um, that's not a spiritual awakening sufficient enough to drive away the desire to eat. So I would of course eat again. And then I had to do it in a way, you know, that was secretive, <laughs> lest they all find out because I just made this big production, right? But then at some point I couldn't even handle being secretive about it. And I would just bring it all back in the house again. And, you know, God help them if they uttered a word about it. I would, I would have a fit. I would, I would say, well, you know, don't tell me how to eat and you should love me for the way that I am. And you're just, you know, you don't love me because I've gained weight and, um, like nobody knows what to do with that kind of energy. And that, and that is for me, that was my experience. That was what I did on the regular. That was the way that I behaved on the regular. Um, you know, and so the addict who's overly sensitive always relies on things going their way, you know, which is bad enough, but even worse when the going our way changes from one minute to the next right? It's bad enough if you need everything to be your own way, but if your own way is different in the morning than it was in the afternoon, like, of course, people around you are neurotic. <laughs> you just, you just made them all crazy. Um, page 123, the second paragraph says, it's going to take time to clear away the wreck. Though old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones, the new structures will take years to complete. And so I read that and I'm like, years? Like, <laughs> I think everybody who's ever put the food down expects their family to be like noticing the second week how drastically they've changed, how everything is better. And, um, and we're like, wait a second, I have to be patient and diligent? Like patient, are you kidding? Patient for what? Patient for, well, first of all, for your family to notice maybe, and acknowledge the changes that they ever do. And I would say, I also need to be patient for my own consistencies in changing. Change takes time, you know? And so I would fall short at times, um, you know? And so this is where um, we live our amends. Yes, we apologize when we, when we mess up, um, but we continue to live our amends. We practice it. Page 123, the fourth paragraph says, talks about the first impulses will be to bury skeletons in a dark closet and padlock the door. It's like, okay, so now that I'm better, I don't wanna hear about anything that I've ever done that's ever been wrong. And let's just pretend that that never existed. Um, and that that's like our impulse. Well, thankfully, we find out that we don't have to be a slave to our impulses anymore. Like that was the old us. But now we know that there's something powerful that happens when we're not a slave to our impulses anymore. And 
here's the thing that happens, right? When we don't look to bury the skeletons. Page 124 really explains, I think it's just so beautiful. It's that um, it talks about experience being the thing of supreme value in life. And um, that we grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. So here's where we grow, that we face the mistakes we make, we rectify it, we clean it up, we make it better, and then we take those things and we convert it into assets, we turn it into good. And then here it further goes on, it says, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. So no, I don't want to bury my skeletons in the closet. Not if it's the, the thing that's my greatest possession. Now. The best thing that I have, my golden ticket to happiness is my painful experiences of the past. Because all those painful experiences, all those mistakes that I made are the thing that I can use to be helpful for other people. It's, it's a beacon of hope now, all my old experiences. And I, I think, you know, like what an incredible thing that our experiences can save people's lives, right? Like we have the power to help people survive. And, and it's just incredible. We're gonna have better lives than before. That's what we're told. We're gonna get even better lives than before. And then all the garbage of my past, all the terrible things I've done, I don't have to be ashamed. I don't have to hide the truth of my experiences, even the bad ones, you know, that our experience saves people's lives. And then what this tells me is that this is why I don't regret the past. This is why I can't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. You know, um, because it wasn't a waste of time after all. You know, when I say, oh, I wish I would have gotten this earlier. If only I would have gotten recovered earlier. Well, no, actually, because there must have been, you know, a catalog of experiences that I needed to have so that I can be more useful to somebody else. And I think that's the way that each of us are, are told to look at it. You know, um, I think like what this means to me is that God takes the trash, you know, the trash of my past and reshapes it and turns it into something good. And, um, and then that with this thing that is something good is it's our treasure. It actually takes our, our trash and turns it into treasure. Um, you know, but we're also told here about digging up past misdeeds and that we want to be careful not to dig up past misdeeds, especially of other people, unless there's good and useful purpose. So, you know, I would say like for me, I don't bring up things that I know are going to hurt other people in front. Like that would be mean. It would be like picking a scab, right? Um, so 
I don't bring up the misdeeds of other people. I leave it to rest. If, if forgiveness, you know, if we say that we forgave somebody, then we don't rub their face in it. We, we forgive them and we let them, we let it go on. We let it move on. Page, you know, 125 says that we can criticize or laugh at ourselves and it will affect others favorably, right? So I can laugh at myself. That's one thing. But criticism or ridicule coming from another often produces the contrary effect, you know? And so we're cautioned, be careful with that. Like you want to bring up your own misdeeds, your own things, and you want to find humor in it of the things that you've done, that's fine. But we don't do that to other people's misdeeds, right? We don't bring it up um, because it can hurt them. And actually it says here that it's been known to raise the very devil, right? So we don't do that to other people. Um, and you know, it says that we're sensitive people. It takes some of us a long time to outgrow that serious handicap. So I would say uh, I am I am pretty sensitive. I you know um, extremely sensitive. That's what we're told here, and that sensitivity is really self centeredness. That um, you know um, we get offended easily. We take things personally, and it it doesn't disappear overnight. We should remember that our families, by the way, have learned to, you know, how to respond to inconsiderate remarks from watching how we respond. If you want your family to not be so quick to take everything personally, you know, we have to demonstrate that rather than point it out to them. If I hope that my family won't be so, you know, easily offended. It's up to me to model what it looks like to not be so easily offended. And I, um, you know, um, I think here when it talks about be careful with your criticism, you know, I could, I could write a book about, um, about this, about being careful with my criticism. Um, you know, for me, it often comes masked as advice. Right. I would say it like, you know, I was thinking, have, you know, I think it might be a really good idea if you blank. And, you know, I have a really good friend who taught me something. She's not in program, but um, but I've definitely taken this lesson and I've applied it. Um, unsolicited advice is criticism. If nobody asked you for advice and you're offering it up, really what you're saying to them is, you shouldn't do it the way that you're doing it, you should do it my way. Um, and nobody appreciates being criticized. Like, I think, I mean, for me, I, I see my kids all over this, like my, my adult married daughter, the last thing I should be doing is offering any advice if I'm not asked. Right. So just recently she asked me um, if I would give a referral. They wanted to adopt a third dog. And um, and that was what I was asked. Would you please, if the shelter calls, will you give a referral? Now, there is no reason why I can't give this girl and her wife a referral. They are the best 
dog, they adore their dogs. Their dogs are their babies. But me as a mother, I'm like, oh my gosh, you have enough on your plate. Like that's an awful lot. You know, how are you going to blah, 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 blah. Well, that's not what I was asked. So I really did. I had to keep that comment to myself. And when the person from the shelter called, the honest truth is, would they make great, would they be good dog owners? A hundred percent. Yes, they would. She didn't ask like, what's your hopes and dreams for your daughter's future? <laughs> you know, that wasn't part of the question. So I kept that part to myself. Um, you know, um, and those are the ways that I can help improve my family relations, right? Um, you know, the um, it says here that since the home has suffered more than anything else, it is well that a man exert himself there. He's not likely to get far in any direction if he fails to show unselfishness and love under his own roof. So I think it's important. Let's talk about exert for a moment here. And what does exert mean? Well, put forth or into use as power, exercise as ability or influence, put into vigorous action to exert every effort, strenuous, vigorous action and effort, right? So my own spiritual growth occurs when I use effort to practice the spiritual principles where, most importantly, in my home. That's what it says. Is it easy to do? Is that like the easiest thing to do? No, right? Obviously, if it requires effort, right? If it's told that we're gonna have to put effort, um, you know, it means that it's gonna be hard work. And, you know, how can I use effort to show unselfishness and love? Well. Okay, so let's look at unselfishness closely then. Um, okay, unselfish, not selfish or disinterested. Um, if you're unselfish, it means you're generous, you're altruistic. Um, you know, the um, what I would say for myself is that I have to do that first in my house before any other place to put forth and exert the effort. And, you know, one of the things that my sponsors reminded me, and it's actually in the AA 12 and 12, that um, I am supposed to treat my family like the most respected member of this fellowship. I'm supposed to have the same regard for family members as for fellows, right? And and I find it far more easy to practice it in the fellowship than it is in my home. That's the truth. And um and my sponsor has said to me, you learn it in the 12 steps rooms so that you can live it with your family that just practicing it in the 12 step rooms and never doing it in your family, that is not what recovery is about. That the purpose of recovery is so that you can be an asset for your family, that you can do a better job with your family. You know, um, so 
in the past, I gave my family the worst of me. That was the truth. I would, I would put on the best me for everybody else. You know, I could bake the cupcakes for the PTA. I could be the Girl Scout leader. I could take everybody's kids everywhere, organize wonderful events. I used to do the most elaborate, insane birthday parties for my children. Um, and then come in and have a temper tantrum for my, for my husband and my kids. Um, you know, so, yeah, we're not supposed to do that. <laughs> like news alert, that's not good. You're not supposed to do that. Um, and in fact, what I found out is that a lot of the times when I was busy doing things, you know, for other people, it wasn't really for other people. It was for me. It was my pride and my ego and some strange sense of status that I had decided that these were the things that gave me greater status. And they weren't really, you know, when I was busy being the Girl Scout leader and doing these elaborate things, um, my daughter was in that troop and I was overlooking her, right? To do wonderful elaborate things, not even for her and not even for the other little girls, but because of the response that it got from the other mothers, that's the truth. I mean, and, and I, it's almost embarrassing. It's, it is embarrassing to say it because I thought that that would make me feel connected. And actually, um, no, it actually doesn't make you feel connected because people don't want to draw closer to somebody who's doing everything. They're like, oh my gosh, you do everything. You're, they actually take 10 steps back from you. Um, that's been my experience. People are far more likely um, when you're real, when you're when you're when you're a real human being, true connection. Um, you know. So, um, page one twenty seven says, family talks will be constructive if they can be carried on without heated argument, self pity, self justification, or resentful criticism. So, right, so that's not temper tantrums. And when I have to discuss something with my family, it has to be done in an effort to build up, not to tear down. And we're supposed to be gentle in our demeanor and in our words. So if something is going on and I'm not able to talk without arguing, and I'm not able to do it without harboring a resentment, then we wait until our emotional sobriety is back in check. And sometimes, you know, I was thinking back, like sometimes my daughter, something would happen when she was younger and I was really beginning to practice this and she would be waiting for me to blow up back. Like we would be in this kind of like back and forth thing and I would stop and say nothing. And she would be like, aren't you going to say anything? And, um, and I actually had to like, it's restraint of pen and tongue. It's restraint of pen and tongue. And I would tell her what I was taught is that it looks like we're getting heated right now. And I think I need to take a moment and, you know, and come back when I'm ready to discuss this in a different, with a different demeanor, with a different attitude. And oftentimes what would happen when I did that was the great thing that I was like, you know, going to fight over became insignificant. I couldn't even remember like an hour or two later what I was so worked up about. Um, 
page 128 says that giving rather than getting will become the guiding principle. And I love this, you know, guiding principles are the principles or precepts that guide an organization or a human throughout its life in all circumstances, irrespective of changes in its goals, strategies, type of work, or the top management. So this is telling me, if it's a guiding principle, then that means regardless of what's going on, that part remains steady. If my guiding principle is on giving, then no matter what's going on, that's my principle. And if you think about guiding principles, these are the principles that we lean on when we need guidance. That's why they're guiding principles, meaning when they're bumps. You know, what's the point of having principles if we don't rely on them when we actually need them? Otherwise, they're just theory. Um, and, and this is what it means to really be other-centered. And again, it's not just in the fellowship, right? So page 128 says, assume on the other hand that father has at the outset a stirring spiritual experience. So now the addict, me, had this stirring spiritual experience. It was like mind blowing. And overnight, as it were, he's a different man. I felt, I felt restructured at times inside. And it says here he can become a religious enthusiast or a 12-step enthusiast, right? Um, he's unable to focus on anything else. As soon as his sobriety begins to be taken as a matter of course, the family may look at their strange new dad with apprehension. And then with irritation, there's talk about spiritual matters, morning, noon, and night. And then if you go to the bottom of the page, it says, we have indulged in this spiritual intoxication. That was me. Like a gaunt prospector, belt drawn in over the last ounce of food, our pick struck gold. Joy at the release from a lifetime of frustration knew no bounds. I felt like I had struck something better than gold. And for a time, I tried to hug the new treasure to myself, right? So I like all these great benefits that I was getting from this recovery. It was like, it was like, no, you know, I felt like they're almost greedy about what I was experiencing and not necessarily looking to help others in my family. But I love this because it says here, he may not see at once that he has barely scratched a limitless load. So you don't have to be greedy about what you find. In fact, the contrary, because it will pay dividends only if he mines it for the rest of his life and insists on giving away the entire product. So we don't have to cling anything, any of the wonderful benefits that we get from recovery. What we have to do is open up and give everything that we receive to others. And if we do that, we have a limitless load. And I think about it, you know, when we, when we pray and we ask to be a channel, well, if you clog up the channel, and you stop allowing what you receive to flow, what happens is you get a swamp, right? 
So it's got to flow open. And if you, whatever good you get, you pass it on and share it with others, whether it's with your family. Obviously, this chapter is about the family. But I would say with anybody in your life, in your program, all the benefits that you get, if you are happily turning them over, helping others, having a giving spirit, it's like limitless. You just get more. And I think that's one of the incredible, you know, you talk about the fourth dimension. In the fourth dimension, it's like you, it's, I, what I found out is that time is different. I don't understand how, but time, when I'm giving service, when I'm like really entrenched in helping others, I seem to have more time in the day. I don't understand how it's true, but it's true. And I think it's the same thing with like love and service. It's not a pie that you cut up and there's less left for you. It seems like if your motives are good, if it's not for self-promotion, if it's not for to build your reputation, but if it's truly to be loving and giving, no, it just seems to be a limitless load. And that's what it's talking about here. You know, it says that a spiritual life, which does not include family obligations, may not be so perfect after all. Um, and that, and it promises that dad's spiritual infancy will disappear. Um, and that's been my experience. You know, I love, I love to talk with my family or to my family about my own spiritual, you know, experiences about the ways that I feel about my relationship with God, about what I've learned about um, being other centered and having a different way of, of existing in the world, but far more powerful than that is actually being that in your family demonstrating that in your family and that if everything you give is only to others that's called spiritual infancy and we you know again don't want to be the king baby you want to grow up um so page 130 says this dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of god in our lives we come to believe he would like us to keep our heads in the clouds with him, but that our feet ought to be planted firmly on earth. That is where our fellow, fellow travelers are, and that is where our work must be done. These are the realities for us. We found nothing incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane and happy usefulness. You know, and so for me, um, the day did come and it has come repeatedly since where all my talk of spiritual, you know, of spiritual theories, of spiritual principles, of the way that I feel about God, purpose of, of living, um, really became a gift for my family that um, for a long time, and my husband still to this day will, um, he likes to poke fun. He's got a great sense of humor. We joke around a lot. Um, and he will like tease me about my meditation. You know, he's like, he likes to tease me and he'll do like, you know, his little jokes about it. Um, you know, and, um, but, you know, one of the most incredible things that did happen was um, years ago, um, my, we had a situation with my daughter and 
I was, thank God, this is like so long past. Um, but I was really upset about something she had done and I could not see that it would ever be better. In that moment, I felt so defeated. And, and I remembered, I, I cried to my husband and I said, um, this is horrible. This is horrible. And I don't think, I don't think this can ever be repaired. I feel like this is just hopeless. The situation with her is hopeless. And, um, and what he said back to me was, wait, Melissa, you never, he goes, you never say that. He's like, you come on. He was like, you always say that God has a plan and his plan is infinitely better. And that if you just trust God, it's all going to work out in the end. The universe has this all mapped out. And I looked at him because I was like, this man was repeating back to me the words that I had been saying for years that he had made fun of for years. Like he would make a joke about that. And in that moment, you know, I said to him, um, oh my gosh, do you, do you, do you want me to say that? Do you like when I say that? And he got really serious at that moment. And he said, yeah, he goes, actually, I could really use hearing it right now. And I realized, you know, like to, I still, I get choked up when I think about it. Um, that's what we can offer for our family. You know, that um, you never know when the words that you're saying really are bringing comfort to them. Now you know, tomorrow he might make fun of me again, but I know in the moments when prayer was really needed, when those guiding principles were necessary because we needed guidance, those guiding principles were there. Um, and uh, I know there was so much more in this chapter, but um, I'm gonna stop at this point and I'll pass, thanks. Thank 